Have you ever noticed how many movies and TV shows there are about the supernatural? Especially lately. If you check out your Netflix library, I'm guessing there's more than you'd expect. There are two kinds that seem to be especially common. Uh, there's this zombie theme that we've been in the midst of, a zombie craze as a culture. The Walking Dead, for example, crushed the ratings for multiple seasons in a row. The, the pundits, the critics, said there's been nothing like it in modern history of TV. So basically, since the internet, ratings have gone down, but The Walking Dead just smashes everybody during that time. It's The Walking Dead, The Walking Dead, more Walking Dead. It's a show about zombies. And then there's also exorcisms. Lots of, especially movies or shows, that focus on the casting out of demons. And uh, before 2000, there were about 10 shows from the last decade before 2000 featuring exorcism. But then in the last 16 years, there's been 38 shows that have had uh, substantial viewing. And so what's interesting to me about all this is overall, especially in the, the recent time horizon, people in our culture tend to say that they're less and less likely to believe in the supernatural. But then, behind closed doors, they go and they intake the supernatural. They, they really do want it, but they have trouble believing it. It's almost as if they're saying, no, of course I don't believe in that. I'm way too smart, way too intelligent, sophisticated, but I'd like to. I'd like to believe in that. I'm fascinated by that. And so when I say supernatural, I don't mean superstition. And I think the misunderstanding of what supernatural is is often the reason that people hold it aside and say, I can't believe in that, I won't believe in that. Superstition is a belief or notion in a particular thing that is not based on reason or knowledge. The supernatural is something that is above and beyond the natural order of things. It's, it is based on reason and knowledge. It's just not explainable by natural law. So is it reasonable to believe in the supernatural? Well, the answer is it depends. It depends on what supernatural claim you're making. The supernatural claim of zombies? The supernatural claim of exorcisms? What basis do you have for believing that? You have to evaluate claims individually, but we never evaluate any claim all by itself in a vacuum. The probability that any event, of any event, it cannot be assumed all by itself because when you're evaluating it, you're doing so in light of what you know about the rest of the world. So, you can't really know how probable supernatural events like miracles are until you know the world that you're living in. Your worldview influences everything else. So you have to engage in your assumptions. You have to engage in your worldview if you want to answer that question. So, let's move out of the realm of theory and into the realm of practice. If you saw a man who was walking on water, would you believe that you saw a man walking on water? Or would you convince yourself, I saw what appeared to be a man walking on water? That's just an example, but that shows you how your worldview, what's possible to you, how that shows you what's, what is acceptable or not acceptable. 
So miracles are a sign in the Bible. They happen for a reason. Signs are never the point. And so we have two signs on both edges of our property. And if signs were the point, then half of us would be meeting over there and half of us would be meeting over there. But no one has come to church and gathered around the sign because the sign points to what's happening in here. It points to worship. And miracles are a sign. They function like signs. They're not the point. They point to the point. So what is the point? That's the ultimate question behind every worldview. What's the point of this life? What's the point of the world? The same reason that God set up the laws of nature that scientists study, the natural laws, is the same reason that he uses the supernatural, that he temporarily suspends those laws. And the point of it all is this, to point us to Jesus. So it's really not unreasonable to believe in the supernatural if God has created the ordered world, he could, for the same reason he created it, temporarily suspend the laws that he set in place in order to point to the same point, right? The natural order has a point. The supernatural has a point too. They both point to Christ. And we're gonna, that's important because we're going to see the supernatural in our story today. And I don't want you to hear it and then say, huh, no way. There is a point to it. The point of the supernatural in our story is that it points to Christ. So as I read this story, we're, we're in Luke chapter 10, and I, as I read this story, I want you to listen to the passage of Scripture, but I want you to imagine like you were one of the 72 that Jesus is talking to. He sent out 72 on a mission, and he gave them orders about this mission. And just think about how would you feel if you got these marching orders from Jesus. And I'm going to fill in. It, my, my feelings won't be on the screen because they're not scripture. And we regard scripture as perfect from God. It's without flaw. And uh, I'm a flawed man. But I do want to lead us into feeling something similar to how the 72 felt because they were real men just like we were really men. Luke chapter 10. After this, the Lord appointed 72 others and sent them two by two ahead of him to every town and place where he was about to go. So if I was one of those 72, I'd be thinking right off the bat, okay, I'm not alone. I've got one other person with me. I like it so far. And then Jesus told them, the harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. I'd feel pretty good about being a worker and going out into a big harvest. And then he says, ask the Lord of the harvest, therefore, to send out workers into his harvest field. And so, if, I mean, I'd, I'd hope that I'd start asking, okay, Lord, please send out more workers into your harvest field. And then Jesus says this, go. I'm sending you out like lambs among wolves. And I'd be thinking, I don't want to be a lamb in the midst of wolves. That's not very encouraging. Uh, don't know how I feel about this harvest thing anymore. I'm, a little, I'm starting to get a little disheartened. And then he says, don't take a purse or bag or sandals and don't greet anyone on the road. And my nervousness increases, right? I'm beginning to see that I'm not really bringing anything to the table here other than my yes if I go. And he, Jesus continues. He's not done giving, me, giving us, giving these 72 instructions. 
He says, when you enter a house, first say, peace to this house. If someone who promotes peace is there, your peace will rest on them. If not, it will return to you. Okay, so I'm to be reliant on other people who I don't know, and if they accept my message, then they'll be peaceful to me. But if they don't, that's, that's what I'd be thinking. Uh, I don't want to deal with people who aren't peaceful towards me, especially when I'm in a strange land, caring about a mission where I'm relying on other people. Jesus would continue, though, verse 7, while all this is happening inside, right? We don't get the real picture of what's happening with these disciples, but they're real people, and they felt emotions. Verse 7, stay there, eating and drinking, whatever they give you, for the worker deserves his wages. Do not move around from house to house. So now it's moving from being reliant on someone else to one family for my daily needs. And then verse 8, whenever you enter a town and are welcomed, eat what's offered to you. So when I'm going into town and when I'm coming home, someone else is cooking the meals, and I sure hope they can cook well. That's what I'd be thinking. Verse 9, heal the sick who are there and tell them the kingdom of God has come near to you. Okay, Jesus, I think I can do the telling part. That's a pretty short message. can memorize that and communicate that, but... I might need some help with the healing. Healing the sick? Okay, that's what you do. Um, Verse 10. When you enter a town and you're not welcomed, go into its streets and say, even the dust of your town we wipe off from our feet as a warning to you. Yet be sure of this, the kingdom of God has come near. And so now my fear about not being received in peace is coming to pass. He is promising that we won't always be received in peace. But he's telling me, he's telling them to bring the same message and then get out of there. Jesus goes on in verse 12, I tell you, it'll be more bearable on that day for Sodom than for that town that denies you and denies the message I told you to bring. Jesus says, woe to you, Chorazin. He's going through specific cities now. Woe to you, Bethsaida. For if the miracles that were performed in you had been performed in these other cities, Tyre and Sidon, those cities would have repented. They would have changed. They would have responded long ago, sitting in sackcloth and ashes. They would have been sad about their sin, which led them to joy in God because they repented and believed. But verse 14, but it'll be more bearable for the cities without the miracles at the judgment than for you. And you, Capernaum, will you be lifted to the heavens? No, you'll go down to Hades. It's the New Testament equivalent word of hell. And at this point, I'd be thinking, this is pretty intense. This mission is intense. Worse than fire falling down on Sodom, as was the case in the book of Genesis. A more bearable judgment for those who didn't see the miracles. Capernaum thinks it's going up, but they're going down. This is intense. This this mission, this message, it matters. That's what I'd be thinking. And then Jesus says in verse 16, whoever listens to you listens to me. Whoever rejects you rejects me. But whoever rejects me rejects him who sent me. And so that would be really humbling to me. Uh, be, I, I believe that was both humbling and inspiring to the 72. They knew that Jesus was asking them to do something that they could not do on their own. 
And he's saying, yeah, but I'm, I'm, I'm with you. Basically, you're representing me. You're not alone. And so at this point in our passage is where the 72 go on mission. And uh, we don't get any details from their mission trip. We only get their initial uh, response when they come back. And so verse 17 picks up, they, they returned. The 72 returned with joy and said, Lord, even the demons submit to us in your name. Think of how delighted you'd be. Jesus didn't promise you that the demons would submit to you in his name, but they did. And uh, so not only did they overcome all this adversity and these obstacles, but they like accomplished more, they felt like. It was, it was a huge win. And then verse 18, Jesus replied, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. And if, if I was one of those two just coming back from a successful mission trip, I'd be like, oh, Jesus, that is so cool. Tell me more. <laughs> Tell me more about that. Um, but he doesn't. He goes on in verse 19, because he has a point in verse 18 that he's driving at, and it's not to tell us more about his seeing Satan fall like lightning from heaven. In verse 19, he says, I give you authority. I've given you authority to trample on snakes and scorpions and to overcome all the power of the enemy. Nothing will harm you. And I'm like, okay, you're right, Jesus. That's even cooler. So tell me how. Tell me how. I I want that. I want this awesome experience of this mission trip to be normal, just to be part of my life. And uh, in verse 20, he says, however, now he's getting to his point. Don't rejoice that the spirits submit to you, but rejoice that your names are written in heaven. And at that point, I'd be like, yeah, I know that, but yeah, what else? Verse 21, at that same time, Jesus, full of joy, through the Holy Spirit said, I praise you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, because you've hidden these things from the wise and the learned and revealed them to little children. The better translation is infants to babes. Yes, Father, for this is what you were pleased to do. All things, Jesus continues, all things have been committed to me by my Father. No one knows who the Son is except the Father, and no one who knows who the Father is except the Son and those to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. And if, again, if I was one of the 72, I'd be like, uh, what, did you just call me an infant? <laughs> what? Uh, it's it's kind of confusing. It's the Father, the Son, revealing the, the Father to the Son, the Son to, to us. And um, it's easy to get lost in that type of language. And then in verse 23, he turned to his disciples and said privately, most likely, I think the 12 disciples, he said to them privately, blessed are the eyes that see what you see. For I tell you that many prophets and kings wanted to see what you see, but did not see it. And they wanted to hear what you hear, but did not hear it. And if you've read the New Testament or the Gospels, you know that the disciples didn't always get it. So again, if we were one of them, we'd also probably be saying, what did we see? What did we hear? What was so great? So let's, let's kind of recap that whole emotional tour through the story. At first, I, I can speak for myself, not for you, but speak to yourself and for yourself. I'd be scared first. Then I'd be overjoyed. 
at the results, and then I'd be kind of confused, like, come on, Jesus. Why can't you just be happy that I was happy and that I did a good job? So I'd be, I'd be a little confused at the end, like, you're not mean, you're not bitter. I know that you're happy with what happened because we, there was your power. You did it through us. So after all, I'm, I'm happy because of what you did through me. What, why are you pointing me to a greater joy? Why? And I think the answer is something like what C.S. Lewis said in this pretty famous quote from The Weight of Glory. C.S. Lewis said, it would seem that our Lord finds our desires, and I'd substitute our joy in specifically with this passage. He finds our joy not too strong, but too weak. We are half-hearted creatures. We're like ignorant children who want to go on making mud pies in the slum because the child that represents us, we can't imagine what's meant by the offer of a holiday at the sea. We're far too easily pleased. So that's our passage this morning. We're in week nine of Experiencing God, and this is a church-wide study that we're going through, um, preaching through the topics uh, from a biblical perspective, using God's word as our foundation. Blackaby does a great job of bringing to light some principles that I believe it's all too easy to skirt around in our Christian experience. But as I've said before, Blackaby's just a man, and he, Um, he's not uh, divinely appointed and inspired by the Spirit as the authors of Scripture was. So he can be wrong. And for the first time in our nine weeks together, I just got to say, Henry, you skipped the melody. And here's what I mean by that. He had this really, really good melody going throughout the study. And the melody was, there's nothing more important, there's nothing more powerful in your life than the love relationship that God is pursuing with you. That's the melody. It's all about this relationship, cultivating, fostering this relationship. And as you do that, as you grow in that, basically everything else falls into place. That's the thrust. And I couldn't agree more. But I want to show you this quote from page 190 that I think kind of represents his whole approach to obedience, which is close, but not quite. I'd say, yeah but no. Um, there's, I say, yeah, because there's nothing I can flat out disagree with uh, except for the inference that I'm picking up. So, so here's the quote. Uh, he's talking about the same passage that we just walked through, and he said, you will be blessed, like the 72 disciples, when God does a special God-sized work through you. You will come to know God in a way that will bring joy to your life. When other people see you experiencing God that way, they will want to know how they can experience God that way too. Be prepared to point them to God. All of that's right. But, no. Because, what did Jesus say when the disciples were overjoyed at the results of their obedience? He didn't say, boy, you got it. That's the pinnacle. He pointed them to the pinnacle. He said, rejoice because your names are written in heaven. So God's work through you is good. God's work in you is great. You'll be blessed when God uses you, but you and me, we will never be more blessed, more happy, more joyful than what God has already done. 
He's made us a new creation. He's called us a beloved son, a beloved daughter of the king. So, again, don't get me wrong. The obedience of the 72 got a lot done in the passage. People were healed physically, spiritually. The gospel was proclaimed. All this was done without any self-made provisions. No money belt, no bags, no shoes. Ladies, no shoes. I'm joking. (laughs) Sorry, couldn't resist. Um, Reliance on other travelers. No reliance on other... No food or shelter laid out ahead of time. They went to some towns where they weren't received. They survived because of God's mercy. The gospel was still preached and judgment was announced. I know they experienced God in all that. It was clear in their response. And much like us, the 72 were joyful in their accomplishment. And we see that in the reply. When they say even the demons, they seem to indicate everything you said happened. Then plus this. This is what put us over the top. The supernatural, driving out demons. But remember, God set the laws of nature in place for the same reason he uses the supernatural, and it's all to point to him. So what's the point of the healing? What's the point of the casting out demons? Well, first, to get them to pay attention to the message, the kingdom of God is here. It's at hand. That's the message. But the message is true because it's about a person, the person of Jesus. So none of that, none of those great accomplishments were the greatest accomplishment of, of obedience. The greatest accomplishment of obedience is what Jesus did. He rejoiced in the Holy Spirit. This is the only time in the New Testament that we see Jesus rejoicing, that we're given this picture of Jesus rejoicing. And so the greatest accomplishment of their obedience is what he points them to when he says in verse 20, however, don't rejoice that the spirits are subject to you, but rejoice that your names are written in heaven. So I believe he was inviting them, he's inviting us into something so much better He's inviting us into the way that Jesus lived, the way that Jesus lived his life and lived out his ministry, the way that he served people. And that that way is what I've been taught and I enjoy and I'm learning. I want us to learn together as a community. It's a way of the cycle of grace. Grace, if you're walking in today and uh, you hear grace as a churchy term. I just kind of want to explain it briefly. It's Grace is an undeserved good gift from God. So this is the way that Jesus lived. He kept getting uh, these good gifts from God, and he, he realized that was his life source. That was his power source. Because even though he was fully God, he was also fully man. And so here's the cycle of grace that I want to introduce us to it starts with acceptance, which should be in the bottom uh, left corner, and then it moves clockwise. So Jesus always received acceptance from his heavenly Father. And he, he knew he was accepted because of his love relationship with the Father, and nothing else. No other reason that he, that he was accepted. It was God's grace alone. And that was formative in his identity, his self-understanding, and then everything else that he did. And we see this 
throughout the scriptures, but especially it's apparent at his baptism and at his transfiguration. At his baptism, you might remember, the father said, this is my son whom I love. In him I'm well pleased. And he said the same thing at the transfiguration. And if you think about the way that Jesus addressed God, it was always as father, which showed he believed he was accepted by his heavenly father. And then the cycle of grace continues with sustenance. Jesus' life was sustained by the grace of God. Grace flowed into Jesus' life in a way that sustained him. Could you imagine, just with all the traveling, Jesus' life would have been exhausting. But all the demands from the people that he was leading, the people that followed him, Jesus was never, well, he was tired, but he was never worn out. And he was busy, but he was never hurried. It was because grace sustained his life. And Jesus was intentional to build in practices to keep receiving grace. We call these intentional practices spiritual disciplines, but think about the ones that Jesus did. He fasted, he exercised solitude, he went alone to get time with his father, he served other people, he had fellowship with other people, he intook the scriptures, he knew them so well. And then many, many other ways that Jesus intentionally built these practices into his life to connect to his father, not just because he had to, because it was a good thing to do. This was his way of filling up what he'd been pouring out. And so in John 4, his disciples had went to go get him food, and Jesus tells them, I have food that you don't know about. My food is to do the one, to do the will of the one who sent me. And so he was always intentionally building practices to strengthen that relationship of grace that he had with his heavenly father. And if you think about our relationships, we're not all that different. We need intentionality to strengthen relationships. And so there's nothing wrong with a night of Netflix with your spouse, but if that's like the only thing you ever do, there's probably something wrong or there's about to be something wrong because you need intentionality to connect. So believers are sustained by grace the same way that a jet is sustained by jet fuel. They run on it all the time. And Jesus made sure to always have a full tank because here's the deal, guys. God is not a withholder of grace. The only ones keeping us from having a full tank is us. So being sustained by grace leads to the third step in the cycle of grace. That's significance. And you, hopefully you see this. The first two are inputs. They're what you input and receive. The next two are outputs. This one is especially interesting to me because it's an output that it's simply an output of thought. It's an output of agreeing what God has already said about you. This is you accepting your identity. But that's an output of grace. That's a result of grace. So what makes significance? What does that even mean? Well, what makes a life significant? How do you judge whether or not your life is significant? Because before attaining to significance, you have to define significance. And Jesus knew exactly what his life meant because of the acceptance that he'd been practicing and training in. He knew why he existed, therefore he knew who he was, therefore he knew what significance was, and it was all bound up in his relationship with the Father. 
And then the last step, if you will, they're really not one step and then the other. They're all kind of together. That's why it's a circle. Um, the last is fruitfulness. This is the outflow, the apparent outflow that Todd can see, that John can see in your life, in my life. This is the outflow of our acceptance by God being sustained as we find our identity in him. This is what we do. And Jesus achieved so much fruit in his life between healing people, casting out demons, teaching, showing compassions, investing in these really uh, slow-learning guys called the disciples. But he never measured his identity by his achievements. The fruitfulness was always an overflow. So be honest with yourself. Which of the four do you strive for? Which brings you the most joy? For me, I'll just be honest, it naturally goes something like this. Fruitfulness, I measure myself by what I accomplish. Significance, my accomplishments, or lack thereof, inform how significant my life really is. Sustenance, I want the accomplishment to last. Acceptance, I'm more likely to be accepted the more fruitfulness happens. The more I accomplish, the more I do, the better I do. That's called the cycle of works. It's the opposite of the cycle of grace, the cycle of works. And that is a lie from the pit of hell. You, me, no one who has ever lived will experience lasting happiness. You'll get flickers, but I'm talking about lasting happiness from the cycle of works. And Jesus is offering us a better way. He's inviting the 72. He's inviting us into the cycle of grace. Don't rejoice that the spirits submit to you in my name, but rejoice that your names are written in heaven. That's not a rebuke. That's a correction. It's a coaching moment. You guys did well. Now I, I believe you can do better. I believe you can keep doing well. Let's go back to what made you go on this mission in the first place. It was grace that brought you safe this far. It's grace that will lead you home. We're called to be more impressed and more joyful in our acceptance by God than anything he ever accomplishes through us. Blackaby just skipped the melody. He just went from verse one to verse two, and I just don't recognize songs without the melody. Like, you need the melody. So you might be wondering, okay, this unit you said, it's about obedience. Where is obedience in the cycle of grace? I've got, a, I've got another question. Where is it not? We obey because we're accepted by grace. We keep obeying because we're sustained by grace. We obey because that's who we are. That is our identity, and we agree with it. We're no longer slaves to sin, but slaves to righteousness. And finally, our grace-inspired obedience produces fruitfulness. So Jesus was trying to help the 72 connect their experience of fruitfulness back to step one, if you will, back to their acceptance. They could never be part of anything greater than what they've already been made part of by God's saving grace. So what about for you? Have you ever thought about why an all-powerful God would want to use you? Why would he send you on mission? We started this church a couple months ago talking about the Great Commission 
our mission as the new covenant people of God? Why? Why give us a mission? He doesn't need anything from us. It's all powerful. It's the same reason he sent the 72. It's for a relationship. And a relationship involves being and doing. And if you remember the Great Commission, Jesus didn't just say, go make disciples. He said, I'm with you always. And all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. So it's not just doing. It's not just being. It's being and doing. It's relationship. And the kind of relationship that Jesus is inviting us into. Oh, man. Verse 21. Jesus, full of joy through the Holy Spirit, said, I praise you, Father. You see what's happening here? He's inviting us into Trinitarian relationship. He's inviting us into the perfect fellowship which existed in God before he made anything because he didn't need to make anything because he was perfectly self-sustaining. He was delighting in himself. You were pleased, though, God, not only to create all this, but to reveal these hidden things, not to the wise and learned, but to little children. It's never been so good to be a little, children, a little child. We get to experience the pleasure of our Father that he has in his Son and in his Spirit. We get wrapped up in God's relationship with himself because he's adopted us in. Not because of anything we've done, but because of grace. And so we get to experience perfect relationship. And of course, in this life, it'll always be flawed. It'll always be a sample. But we have the person. We have the perfect person. And therefore, we get to experience this perfecting relationship. And God uses weakness and strength in this relationship. Think about the weakness. He sent us out, he sent them out like sheep among wolves at the start of this mission. And then he uses strength. Coming out of that mission, those guys probably felt like they had a bunch of dead wolves behind them because they just knocked it out of the park. But God uses their weakness and their strength to point them back to the primary nature, the life-giving importance of their relationship with God. Your names are written in heaven. And so it all points back to Jesus, of course. So verse 23 and 24, when he turns to his disciples and, and says, blessed are the eyes that see what you see and the ears that hear what you hear. Other people wanted that, but they didn't get it. What did they see? What did they, they saw and heard God incarnate. God in the flesh, God with us in Jesus. So if you're looking for joy, and who isn't? Jesus points us to the deepest, most pure well to draw our joy from his relationship to us and to the God of eternal joy. So let's do some applications. Uh, there's so many, I really had trouble knowing where to start. But have you accepted grace? Have you accepted this free gift from God? And if you don't, if you haven't, then talk to someone that you know And if you don't know anyone, you can talk to me and I promise to to listen and not talk at you for another 30 minutes. But that's that's the first step. You need to realize that God is willing to accept you wherever you're at. He's, He's offering you this love relationship. 
But you have to respond. You have to respond by repenting and believing, turning away from your own life and committing to live a life following Christ. No one does that perfectly. That's not the expectation. It's to, it's to move in that direction. And we all can choose a direction. We all are choosing a direction to go with our lives. And then if you have made that decision before, are you being sustained? Are you using spiritual disciplines to keep repenting and keep believing? Repent from the cycle of works and trust Jesus by following his way of life, the cycle of grace. And another application is be honest with yourself about what you're finding significance in. And if you're honest with yourself and it's in the cycle of works, tell someone else. We need each other to grow. And if you've had fruit in your life, that's great. Don't be ashamed of that. Share it with other people, but practice Jesus' teaching and rejoice more in your salvation. And when your feelings don't match up, just repent. Hey, my feelings are off, God. I know that it's more valuable. There's nothing I can do to make me any more valuable to you. And there's nothing more valuable to me than how you've chosen me and how you love me regardless And even in very practical things like parenting and friendship, have you been leading your children in a cycle of grace? Do you say, I'm so proud of you because you're my son, or I'm so proud of you for doing a good job at that? You see the difference? It's the works. I'm so proud of you for doing a good job at that. That's okay to say, but just make sure that you frame it up rightly eventually and say, you did a great job at that. I'm proud of you but I could never be more proud of you than just having you as my son or my daughter or my friend. That's a relationship of grace. And so this week, we're all going to practice Thanksgiving, or I hope we do. And in, in all of our gratitude, there's so much to be grateful for. The food, the family, the, the good material things that we have, homes, pet dogs, all these things. But there's there's always more to be grateful for in the gospel because there's nothing more valuable to us than what Christ has done. So where's the gospel in this passage? Well, I'd say the gospel is the message. The kingdom of heaven is at hand. It's near. And so what that means is this cycle of grace, it's available to every single person. You can live in it. It'll take effort. You'll never be perfect, but you can experience the life of Christ in you. And that's supernatural because that's not natural for us. So do you remember our culture's fascination with the supernatural? How the walking dead crushed the ratings? Every act of obedience is an experience with God. Every act of obedience is something God-sized, something only God can do, to use Black Abyss terms. You cannot obey without God the Holy Spirit applying grace to your heart. So obedience is supernatural, but to us it seems, well, it doesn't seem supernatural because it's so subtle. So I'd say obedience is subtly supernatural. It flows from the supernatural work that God has and is bringing about 
in our lives individually and collectively as a community. We put in effort, so it definitely does not feel supernatural, like it just happens. But think about some of the commands. Think about some of the the ways that this happens. For example, Jesus said, go and make disciples. Our effort is pursue people, even when it's awkward, even when it's inconvenient, when it's sacrificial. And we don't do it for our sake, but for Christ. If you're faithful to that, that is Christ at work in you. And then another example is the great commandment. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. We put in effort to wake up. And I don't always feel like talking to God, but I talk to him anyway. I don't always feel like reading his word, but I put in the effort. And we let, and as we put in the effort, we actually experience God whether we feel it or not. Another example, 1 Thessalonians 5, 16 through 18, if you're ever in, Wondering what God's will is for your life, here it is. Be joyful always, pray continually, give thanks in all circumstances. That is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. Paul could have included a mic drop right there. Because we all we ask that question all the time. What is God's will for you? What is God's will for me? So joy, be joyful always. Joy is not just an emotion, neither is thankfulness. It takes effort and intentionality. And so when you see like a friend, a small group member, being joyful always, consistently, praying continually, when you see them giving thanks even in hard circumstances, tell them, I see God at work in your life because God's at work in their life. And they need that encouragement. This is all tough, but the only one who will prevent us from filling up our tank of grace that we need to run, not on our power, but on God's power, is not God, it's not the devil, it's us. Because it's not God. Romans 8, 32, he who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he, God the Father, not also, along with him, God the Son, graciously give us all things. He gives us everything we need to live a life of godliness. Not the devil, we saw it in this passage, Luke 10, 19. Jesus says, I've given you authority to trample and to overcome all the power of the enemy. Nothing's going to harm you. So how can we grow? Well, be most fascinated with Jesus. He's the point of our lives, the point of the world, the, the reason that demons exist. He's the point of everything. He's the one who wrote our names in heaven before the foundation of the world. So as our culture and people around us, and let's be honest, even us, we're a little bit fascinated with the supernatural. Let's give them, let's give us something tangible to be fascinated with. Christ in you, changing you one degree at a time as you obediently live out of the cycle of grace. Let's pray. Talk to God about your life. And just be honest with him. What's your significance according to you right now? What it's been the last week? What is the fruitfulness you desire? Desiring fruit is not inherently bad, but finding our value, our identity in it is. 
if nothing else, use the rest of our time together to let God affirm his acceptance of you apart from anything that you say or anything that you've done or ever will do. Let God affirm his acceptance of you.